Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Blooming Out. I am Rachel Jones. And I'm Kim Hahn. Thanks for joining us for a new edition of Indiana's only queer public affairs radio show. And if you can't listen live, you can hear this and other episodes online at wfhb.org. Each week, we produce a show by and for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and ally communities. Our listeners can always count on us to cover the most pressing issues, interesting people, and latest events reflecting the LGBTQ plus community, life in Indiana, the U.S., and across the world. And we are joined by our guest this hour, LGBTQ plus counselor Caroline Hippler. Okay, so let's begin with today's topic, starting with Australia, where in a historic survey, a majority of citizens voted for gay marriage equality with 61.6% voting yes. And it looks like the participation for this survey was 79.5% of voting age Australians. So that's significant. Opponents are already pushing exemptions that would allow those who disagree with marriage equality to refuse to recognize same-sex couples. Okay, so basically we're talking about the bakery here again. Um, yeah. Do they like, have... Like we've experienced here. Yes. Um, and I, I read someplace farther down, it was actually a U.S. group that was, okay... Earlier this month, former Australian Prime Minister and current Member of Parliament Tony Abbott spoke to the Alliance Defending Freedom, a U.S.-based group that asserts religious freedom but is also known for aggressively fighting against LGBT rights, including same-sex marriage. So the United States is once again exporting hate to other countries. Mm -hmm. I, I truly believe we have done an amazing disservice to Australia, you mean? Well, yeah, but it's a U.S.-based group, Alliance mm -hmm. for Defending Freedom, mm -hmm. that is going over and, and stirring up trouble. Right. And a, the Baltimore Sun reported that this group, ADF, defended the, which has been discredited, the conversion therapies uh, for gay minors. Um, and we'll get into more specifics about that later in the show with our guest, Caroline. Um, but it is an extremely harmful practice. It's reminiscent to me of medieval torture, only they largely use electronics, which they didn't have then. But the minds of people that could sit there and electrocute somebody because they didn't believe in their sexual or gender orientation um, I cannot imagine the amount of self-righteousness you would have to have, or either you're just plain old sadistic, um, to be able to do that to somebody. Yeah, I, I don't understand it either. But I, you know what? I, I think let's let's move forward. Um, something on on a positive note to go along with this. Um, I don't know if we touched on it last week or not, but uh, Uruguay elected their first mm -hmm. trans... Did we talk about this first? No, we haven't. Uruguay elected their first trans senator. Um, amazing. Thank goodness um, Central America is loosening up. I know we talked a little bit about um, different parts of the world, or, or you and I talked individually, and yeah. how different company or different countries uh, receive LGBT people. It's wonderful to see a, a country like Uruguay broaden so much and, and elect a trans person. Absolutely. And we uh, we elected in this country recently a trans person. Oh, yeah. And you know what? The, the, the most poignant thing about this, and, and I think we did talk about it um, last week, she defeated, this was in Virginia? Yes. She defeated a proponent of the bathroom bill. I just think that is so poignant in justice served. Um, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, shall we move on? I do. I think so. Okay, um, back over to the U.S. We take a look at Twitter. The social media platform has recently apologized for blocking searches of certain hashtags relating to sexuality, including bisexual, bisexuality, and transsexual. Yeah, so the blocking of particular hashtags took place in early November 
and Twitter did come out and apologize, and it they ended up kind of apologizing in a series of tweets. Um, and it seems like they came out and they would say one thing, and then they would they would add to it um, and come up with a lot of different. It almost seemed like they were coming out with a lot of different excuses. Is that how you found it to be, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, okay, let's let's take a look at what we're talking about here. So Twitter, a multi-billion dollar company, I'm sure, is not run by a couple people sitting in a room. It, it, it's run by boards and um, panels and things like that. So I can only imagine a group of people sitting someplace deciding that bisexual and transgender are um, hashtags that are not suited to be on the air, and then somebody signs off on it, and it happens. Right. They said it was adult content. <sighs> okay. I was, one of the... I was transgendered as a little kid, um, so I don't know how that's adult content. It was particularly the hashtag bisexual, bisexuality, and transsexual, and just those three. You know, how are just those three blocked as adult content? Adult content? Last week, we discovered a technical issue that affected search results. That's because they had so much people complaining to them. Searches for certain words related to sexuality did not populate complete results. We apologize for anyone negatively impacted by this bug. It is not consistent with our values as a company. Well, that's why you guys did it. It's not consistent, huh? I don't know what to say. When I, when yeah. I first heard about it, I was amazed that somebody would think it's okay. And Lynette McFadden uh, has come out, who's president of Binet USA, and said that the apologies didn't go far enough. Uh, she said, Twitter says it was an old system that was incorrect. We have to wonder why our identity is questionable material in the first place. It is an example of the biphobia, biphobia we still endure. We have alarming rates of mental disparities. Many felt triggered by past erasure. In that light, we asked Twitter to address our community directly. Yeah, you know, I don't think all censorship is wrong, but drawing the line is what is appropriate and what isn't. I, I suppose I, in some form or another, fit into both of these categories. So they just want to erase me as a person? Well, let's go ahead and switch gears right now and take our first music break with the artist St. Vincent. Grammy Award-winning Annie Clark, known by her stage name, St. Vincent, melds experimental rock, electro-pop, and jazz into her own unique sound style. From her 2007 debut album, Marry Me, here is The Strangers.
were just listening to St. Vincent with the Strangers. Let's return to our discussion and include a story last month out of the UK. The Royal College of Psychiatrists issued a statement acknowledging for the first time that harm has been done to gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, okay, let's add transgender here, who were subjected to aversion therapy. The statement begins with, there are no words that can repair the damage done to anyone who has ever been deemed mentally unwell simply for loving a person of the same sex. For those who were then treated using non-evidence-based procedures by mental health professionals up until as late as the 1970s, the trauma of such experiences can never be erased. The statement was issued in response to BuzzFeed News interview with Jeremy Gavins. In the 1970s, doctors forced this therapy upon him for six months. So, okay, let's take a look at this. This kid, taken by his parents, presumably because he was having homosexual feelings, taken to a psychiatrist for help. Okay, at 18, he was strapped to a chair as part of his therapy. Doctors then sent electric currents through him while showing pictures of naked men. The idea behind the therapy was inducing attraction for the opposite sex. Instead, however, Gavin's revealed it to BuzzFeed, created a lifetime of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. And later on, we talked to Caroline Hippler, who is a local therapist here, about the subject of aversion therapy and how it's absolutely not, it seems so barbaric, first of all, and, and she kind of goes more into into the history a little bit. But I have a hard time putting myself in the psyche of the people that performed this therapy. I hope no one received pleasure from doing it, but my God, I just can't imagine it. This is basically torture. Mm-hmm. You want to switch gears, Rachel, and we'll sure move on to... Back to the Me Too hashtag stuff? Yeah. Jesus, you guys. Every day, somebody new is coming out. Okay, so you want to start us on this, Cam? Sure. On Monday, CBS newscaster Charlie Rose was suspended after eight women have come forward to say he sexually harassed them. Uh, after he sexually, yes, and allegations included groping, unwanted advances, and inappropriate phone conversation. Rose gave the following statement. In my 45 years in journalism, I have prided myself on being an advocate for the careers of the women with whom I have worked. Nevertheless, in the past few days, claims have been made about my behavior towards some former female colleagues. It is essential that these women know I hear them and that I deeply apologize for my inappropriate behavior. I am greatly embarrassed. I have behaved insensitively at times, and I accept responsibility for that, though I do not believe that all of these allegations are accurate. I always felt that I was pursuing shared feelings, even though I now realize I was mistaken. I have learned a great deal as a result of these events, and I hope others will too. All of us, including me, are coming to a newer and deeper recognition of the pain caused by conduct in the past and have come to a profound new respect for women and their lives. I think that translates to, I got caught. I, I think the same thing, too. He, he, <laughs> right. He's, um, uh, he, he, there's a caveat, though I do not believe all these allegations are accurate. Well, That's I like- not a true apology. Um, I kind of thought, I like the one, I always felt that I was pursuing shared feelings. Right. That's great. We've exhausted the issue, but the issue keeps coming up. Okay, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. So, and we talked about believing the accuser. Absolutely, you've got to believe the accuser and you have to protect the accused until you find out what really happened. But... I don't see an end to this at this point. Do you? I don't know. It's it's fascinating times. And it'll be interesting to see how this shifts things culturally. 
Okay, folks, that wraps up our headlines for tonight. Now let's shift gears and welcome Bloomington therapist, Caroline Hippler. Thank you for joining us, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me. So, Caroline, you are a LGBTQ plus mental health therapist. That's correct. I work with primarily folks who would identify themselves somewhere within the LGBTQ community with a special focus on the T part of that. I was not aware of that. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Yeah, the bulk of my clientele typically has been folks who would identify somewhere under the transgender umbrella. And so that can cap that captures a lot of different identities. Uh, but that is typically, that is for the most part where I lean. So what are some of the top reasons that a trans person would come to you? Well, gender is an experience that we all have to live with. We all have gender. And for some of us, we are uh, sort of privileged enough to have been to identify with the sex or gender that we were assigned at birth. For others, it doesn't fit their experience of the world. And so for that reason, they might end up having trouble with the way they're treated by other people, uh, with the reactions that they receive from other people or how they're gendered by others. And that's something that can cause some distress and will bring a person into therapy um, or access to resources. Therapy often for trans folks, in addition to being a resource itself, is also a gateway to other resources. So sometimes folks are coming to see me because they have issues that they want to work through, and sometimes they're coming to see me because they have to in order to get letters of referral for other services. Let's talk about that a little bit, protocol. Being older, when I was growing up and researching a little bit, Harry Benjamin was the rule of the land. Um, and I think a lot has changed since then. If I, as a identifying transgender person, wanted to take estrogen, please tell me what I would need to do to make this happen. Well, you have a couple of options. Right now, everything is pretty much pretty much comes down to who's providing the estrogen. That's who really gets to say what the regulations are. All professionals are guided now by WPATH, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which used to be the Harry Benjamin Society, or Habigda was the name for it. Big duh. Uh, yeah. And so there are suggestions in the WPATH guidelines that folks begin by first socially transitioning, spending time in the lived identities that they experience. Calendar time, is there a set, I think Harry Benjamin, with two years, a year? Yeah, two years used to be very de rigueur, and then it's changed up to thought of be thought of as one year okay. now. Uh-huh. But again, it's very up to who's writing the letter and who's receiving the letter. I personally don't always hold folks to a year-lived uh, presentation of their sort of what's sometimes referred to as the target gender, mm-hmm. because in some cases that can endanger a person's life or that can not align with their particular gender journey. So uh, for that reason, I and other practitioners sometimes will change things up. So I'll write letters to a person after having seen them. I have to see them a minimum number of times to make the judgment that they're ready to proceed. There's also, in some places, an informed consent model for accessing estrogen or testosterone or a hormone-suppressing agents. And there's an informed consent center like that in Chicago called Howard Brown. And there, you don't need a letter from anyone. You just show up, assert your identity, and go through their process, of course, and sign informed consent papers. And then you can access medical services without a gatekeeper like me, like a therapist. So there are a couple of ways that people can get it. What's really hardest, I think, is to know that there are a couple of ways. A lot of folks I talk to don't know how you do it, don't know that you that's saying that you, you need to find a provider or find an informed consent center. Okay, so you so you counsel them, and then you write a letter of recommendation to their MD, and then they'll get the prescription for the hormones that they need. Exactly. Most folks who are going through a medical transition, a transition where they're either taking hormones 
or taking uh, hormone additives or taking suppressants, um, they will see an endocrinologist in addition to uh, who will actually provide the medication, monitor blood levels, monitor liver function, and and assign the correct level of suppressant or addition to a person based on their particular biological makeup. What I can do is say, yep, this person experiences everything that according to the DSM, which where this is still listed as a disorder, that they qualify for this diagnosis, that they're able to make decisions for themselves, and that they would take treatment responsibly. But before we talk about the, I was a bit upset that the DSM still considered this a disorder, and mm-hmm. I'll catch everybody up on why I'm less upset about it now. But you said meet the protocol other than living as a woman and self-identifying as a woman, what other protocol is there to follow? There's some slight differentiation when talking about gender identity disorder in children uh-huh. versus in adolescents and adults. But for the most part, with adolescents and adults, there are things the, proto- the protocol are things like experiences distress related to the body that they live in, experiences distress at secondary sex characteristics. Sometimes at the time of puberty, that can be a really painful part of a trans person's life when they start to develop secondary sex characteristics associated with, typically associated with the gender they don't identify as. Um, So distress related to those things and then experiencing increased comfort when socially presenting the way you identify that is also a part of the diagnosis that you are that one of the things that I'll always say in a letter is what how the person's transition steps have impacted their transition so far have the, have these steps brought less distress to your life have they um made have they helped you to feel empowered i i i think that that wouldn't always go together. I think knowing when I started to come out, mm-hmm. I certainly felt like it's something that I needed to do, but it didn't, there was definitely more stress by rural Indiana. Um, but you divided this into two categories. Can we talk a little bit about children? Because mm-hmm. I think it is wonderful and it's fascinating that how young um, people are, are coming out and identifying and often the support they get from their parents. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly something that we're hearing talked more and more about as we have, especially as we have folks like Jazz Jennings who are willing to be sort of figureheads and um, kind of standard bearers for a lot of younger folks who are. So when it comes to the DSM, The big differences in diagnosis are that whereas for adolescents and adults, the DSM focuses on individual assertions of experience, I identify as, I experience distress when. For children, the diagnosis is a little bit more behavioral, a little bit more based on what they interact with, what they're drawn to. Kids often first express their, uh, what can sometimes be referred to as cross-gender identities or a gender identity inconsistent with that which they were assigned at birth. Um, They'll sometimes express it through playing with toys that are stereotypically masculine or feminine or with dress up or with the friends that they choose at school. So it'll get expressed in more behavioral ways. And then what kind of, so do you work with children? I personally don't work with children. I specialize in working with young adults, emerging adults. I've seen some older adolescents. Uh, It really is a very um, different set of skills because you're working with someone who's still meeting a lot of developmental milestones and you end up doing a lot of work working with children. There are some great specialists in town who do this work with children. A lot of it is also working with the family to understand, Mm -hmm. to learn how to support their gender variant child to learn how to provide the support they need to co- to comfort them if they get pushback from peers or other parents. Um, it really is much more family-based when you get into those younger years. I know everybody is different, but working with young adults, I can only imagine what life would be like had I not gone through male puberty. Mm. 
is there, and, and, and I guess since we're all different, there's not a cookie cutter answer. Is there an age that if you're before 12 or before 10 or that is optimal? Because my understanding, had I taken androgens and estrogen, I would be much shorter, probably built completely. I mean, Mm-mm. no beard, musculature of a woman, um, just complete secondary characteristics of a woman except genital. Right. Yes. You. If you. There are um, GnRH hormone suppressant drugs that sometimes younger children or pre-adolescents can take. You can take them after you've started puberty. And like, but you're right. It's very, everyone's body is very different. I know when I went to school, there were watching my peers go through puberty was a decade long process. So there isn't a, (laughs) there isn't necessarily a one size fits all time to start taking it. It's true that the earlier you start taking those suppressing hormones, the more development of secondary sex characteristics you can reduce. What's also true about those uh, suppressant hormones is that they're reversible. If a person decided to stop, if a child or adolescent started that process and then for some reason decided to stop taking those, then they would go through puberty and they would develop those secondary sex characteristics associated with the hormones already in their bodies. Oh, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that, that is interesting. So I would this not depend on, depend on age again though. So you go through puberty, maybe at a later age, Mm. would you then go through a growth spurt as you would normally, or will you be, I mean, you might that would this would all be of course if you decided to not take any hormone supplements if you decided to desist from taking suppressants and do nothing else that's then you would go ahead and have puberty associated with the hormones in your body but for some folks what they'll do is switch from taking those suppressants to taking hormone replacement therapy or in the case of a lot of um, feminizing hormones you take both you take suppressants and hormone replacement. So it really depends on what kind of, what you do in addition to the suppressants that will determine what kind of puberty your body experiences. If you if you decide to take suppressants and then take a set of hormones, that's the puberty you'll experience. Interesting. So for an adult who starts taking hormones, are they then taking those hormones for the rest of their lives and then under the care of an endocrinologist then? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's, again, I always feel like I have to say it's very individual. Folks folks make decisions that they, uh, that are right for them. But yes, for the most part, the impact of hormones uh, will diminish if you stop taking them. There are some changes like breast growth or vocal register lowering, and uh, if you're taking masculinizing hormones, your vocal register will lower. If you're taking feminizing, you'll experience breath, breast growth. Those don't go away. If you stop taking hormones, those are there. Other features like fat re- redistribution, those can, some of those can change if you desist taking hormones. But for the most part, if you decide to take hormones and you like the effect, there's something that you'll have a relationship with for life if you like that. Do some people, when they start to take the hormone, just it's so intense for them that they really have a lot of problems adjusting? And do you take people, how do you take people through that process? That's an interesting question. I'm thinking anecdotally just about my own experience observing folks go through this process. And, you know, for the most part, People are excitedly watching and observing and noticing the changes and are quite often tapping their foot impatiently, hoping to see more change. Um, You know, it can be, I think the, the one thing that can be, or one of the things that could be jarring for folks is when there are visible changes from hormones and folks who might not know that they are trans identified then see that and understand, okay, there's something about this person that I don't know. So the the effects of hormones can be in that way, outing. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes uh, around the decision to take hormones, a person checks in with themselves along where where they are along the coming out continuum 
because it, it's a choice that might come to a head if you decide to medically transition. And for people when they, like, is, do you recommend any kind of protocol or recommendations for how a person, a trans person starts to come out to people? And I'm sure it's different for so many people. Absolutely. It's a different experience for a lot of people. Um, But, you know, the the big thing that I always like to focus on and and sort of emphasize when talking to folks who are thinking about coming out is, well, first we have to acknowledge that coming out is the product of a heteronormative and Mm -hmm. cisnormative culture that assumes things about people that then have to be corrected. It's an unfair strain on people to have to Mm -hmm. come out. But we do live in that world and we do have to come out. And so I, and I like to keep my focus on the fact that coming out is a gift to whomever you're talking to. You're saying, hi, here's something intimate about who I am and I've chosen you to share this with. It's a privilege to get to know that about someone. It's not a burden or a bad thing. And it, it often gets so portrayed as, oh, this heavy, heavy, I have to break, you, break your heart and tell you this truth, when the reality is you're giving someone a gift, the opportunity to know you better and to, get, and to support you in the right ways. And if they don't want to know you better or support you in the right ways, unfortunately, they'll let you know. And that makes that makes your path a little clearer. As an older adult, and I I, I imagine it's still in your sphere of knowledge, even though you don't work with people my age. So I'm 58, um, and I am well set in my determination that I I have a masculine body. My taking estrogen now in a testosterone block, what's the best I could expect as far as, this is something I think about every day. I, I'm not, but I think about it all the time. If I did, at this late age, I know the differences would not be as great. Um, if you began taking hormones today yes, versus in the past? Right. You know, it really depends on how folks' individual bodies respond to hormone treatment. I think that some... I've, I do. I have seen folks all over the age spectrum, and have seen folks, you know, experience transitioning at different points along the sort of age spectrum. And it's true that once your body has gone, has you know, in your what, early twenties is when we sort of wrap up a lot of our bio- physical uh-huh. transformations. Um, but you know, it's it's true that after that point. Uh, your body's going to respond how it's going to respond. Some things like those secondary sex characteristics are locked in. But it's also the case that uh, I think some bodies are really responsive to hormone therapy. And, you, you know, what we're really talking about noticing is some is things like body hair redistribution and fat redistribution. And, you know, those cells are always dividing. Uh, a lot of people will, in addition to taking hormone therapy, will do other sorts of treatments like very popular and very painful laser hair removal or electrolysis so my hair would not go away my facial hair it will lighten and reduce in coarseness okay it's possible that that would be enough of a difference that you would be totally satisfied for folks who might experience having starting with coarser beards Mm -hmm. they sometimes will choose to add electrolysis or laser hair removal just to ensure that that facial hair is taken care of or any other areas of concern taking it's true also that taking feminizing hormones um will stop or slow down any hair loss that's happening or any receding hairlines that are happening uh so that's a factor i think for folks Uh, i know that something there are we talk about triggers of gender dysphoria triggers of distress related to your gender identity versus presentation and a common trigger for folks is uh, receding hairline. I hate it. Mm, I, yeah. I, I'm not wearing a wig today, um, but I probably should be because my I do have um, at, at some point wigs are uncomfortable. They're expensive. They don't last very long unless you have a good one, and I never have. Um, I wear a hat sometimes, but yeah, 
so would I possibly I would have a better head of hair? It would possibly stop any hair. It's not loss coming back happened, though, huh? It wouldn't bring it back. I don't <laughs> believe. Yeah. Darn. <laughs> You're out there. <laughs> Rachel, um what what do you think has prevented you from from doing the hormones? Wow. That's your second blind side, Kim. <laughs> I know it's it's a, maybe real. it's a hard question and you don't have to answer if you're not comfortable. I just I was just curious cuz you mentioned it. I I actually have a letter. I I I could if I wanted and 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 I think so much about it you guys. Um one of the incorrect me any place that I am incorrect. Dating would be more difficult. I date I date women. Um, I would eventually not be able to perform sexually any longer if I did. That is a concern. And I feel an odd obligation to be fit and strong. And I don't know why, because I'm getting older, so that's I'm losing that anyway. Uh, yeah, that, it's that's a, lot. It that's sounds, a great it seems question. It's like a honey, lot to but, think about. <laughs> and, and I guess I feel a responsibility. Still to my kids, both of my daughters have expressed they want their dad to walk them down the aisle. Hurry up, you guys. Um, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, that is pressure, grandkids. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's a tough thing. And, and I will say, and my friends that are transgender that, that I have talked with this about, it is a continuum. It's not static. It ebbs and flows, and some days it's an overwhelming urge to take estrogen because I want my body to be different. And some days, um, I ask Elby, we had a, a transgender friend on last week, um, if she ever regretted or still went out as as a man, and absolutely, absolutely not. Um, on a rare occasion, I do, and and. I don't know. It's it's a toughie, but we're not talking about me, Kim. Well, these are these are calculations that a lot of folks who identify in the trans under the trans umbrella have to make. Hormones aren't side effect free. They do have these impacts on sexual performance or on how you use your body or how your voice sounds. I know it won't help my voice now though, mm. because it's already deep. It it would make a, a Female to male, they would have a nice deep voice eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, male to female, my voice would not become a higher register. It's true. That's one of those different different effects of the horm of hormones that you take. Masculinizing hormones will lower your voice. Feminizing hormones will not raise the pitch of your voice. I would cuss um, now, but FCC would, <laughs> would not appreciate that. Yeah. So voice therapists end up spending a lot of time with trans women who are working to uh, – speak in tones and Soft, styles that are soften. more mm -hmm, exactly and for those out there who don't know there is a program at iu through the speech and hearing in the music school that will work with you so if there's anyone out there that and, and i have been and they first they test your range and my range was all fine my problem psychological mm -hmm. i'm embarrassed too but for those people who are farther evolved than I am and want to sound differently, they will certainly help you. Indeed, they are. They they really will tailor their mm -hmm. um, program to exactly what your voice goals are. Whether your goal is to feminize, masculinize, or speak in a gender neutral pitch, that's something that folks sometimes target as well. How have you? found things to change now. It seems like the new buzz is gender non-binary. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk a little bit about what that means and where that's going to? Yeah. To, well, for a long time uh, in our, all, our culture and cultures across the world, we've imposed a sort of binary. Our Human brains are really fond of patterns. And so we like to make everything fit this pattern of two genders, man, woman, and sort of essential mm -hmm. traits ascribed to both. Increasingly, we're understanding that people don't experience gender in just two ways, either mm -hmm. I'm a man or I'm a woman, whether you were assigned that at birth or not. But more and more, we're finding that folks actually experience gender in a lot of different ways. Um, and so some people don't adhere to I'm either or and would then instead say that they identify as somewhere either as you, know, you might hear someone use the term gender neutral, non-binary, two-spirit, mm 
uh, gender-free, agender. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of different identities that might fall under a non-binary category, uh, but they all sort of express the idea that, hey, you know, there's, there's more than just these two. There's more than just... Uh, man and woman, but there are a lot of genders and a lot of ways to have gender. We all have gender. Would you then experience someone that was non-binary in a form take an androgen, but not take a corresponding masculinizing or feminizing hormone? Sure, oh, sure. Non-binary folks definitely will medically transition at times too. And so that might mean, yeah, taking a suppressant, but not taking a replacement or it might mean taking always a very low dose of hormones to, main, to maintain yourself, to maintain your hormone levels in a gender-neutral range. It might mean having top surgery, but never having bottom surgery. Or it might mean having an orchiectomy, but never having anything else. What, what was, what's an orchiectomy? An, an orchiectomy <laughs> is a Orchiectomy? Mm -hmm. It's a removal of testicles. Okay. Uh, so it's something that folks, a step someone might take that would take the place of, in some ways, taking a, a testosterone suppressant. Okay. Because that's, there's your testosterone producing hotspot. So, and if it, sometimes those are a site, they are a secondary sex characteristic and can be a site of gender dysphoria. So for some folks that surgery is part of their transition journey. Okay, so if someone took a hormone suppressant, how would that affect their development, they would they just have more of a neutral uh, appearance? How, I'm so curious. So let's say uh, let's imagine like a like an, a 12 year old begins taking uh, GnRH suppressant. Their body would, I believe, I'm not an expert on uh, hormone therapy. You know, I'm yeah. not an endocrinologist, but right. my understanding is that, yeah, then secondary sex characteristics would stop developing. Their bodies would sort of slow the development process. And that's a choice sometimes folks will make when they are dealing with a child who is working through their identity. This, Some are more certain than others. This went on for centuries with um, singers. Mm. Um, oh. Castrato um, is, is a true thing, and I don't know that it was always a voluntary uh, decision to have that done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. We have fortunately found more consensual, more <laughs> reversible ways to keep a person uh, from going through puberty. Uh, but yeah, that that's true. This is a and all of the all of the medical transition steps that a person who's trans might take. They're all kinds of medical treatment that exist for cis people also for that people use for other reasons. There are cis men who take testosterone supplements because their T is low. There are cis women who take estrogen because they're going through menopause. These are all just normal medical treatments that are being applied for different reasons across the board and trans this is just one of those reasons. A lot of cis women take testosterone yeah. to be more Active. That's oh, a good point. It's for a, athletics or? Well, I was thinking in the bedroom. Sexuality. Athletics in the bedroom. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so when, I, I don't know if we have any listeners who aren't sure what cis is uh, because it's a fairly new Yes. It's, a, it's fairly newly used, uh, but cis simply means same. So if you say uh, if you say I'm a cisgender person, that just means that you identify with the sex that you were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. Cis is more or less the opposite of trans, which means to cross. And so if you're saying I'm a transgender person, you mean you're saying I'm I'm crossing gender lines. It's for that reason that some non-binary folks sometimes don't use the word transgender because they're not crossing from one side to the other. But it's very individual. If you're ever uncertain about how what terms a person use uses, ask them. They'll mm. it, they'll tell you, and if they don't feel like telling you, eh, accept that decision. But for the most part, you know, people will have ideas about how what terms they use for their identity. So we we talked about earlier how we live in a certain kind of society that a person does have to come out if they're what their sexuality or what their gender is sort of outside of the norm. But wh what do you imagine it would take for us to have a society where we don't even have to come out? Oh, that's a that's a good question. You know, it's sort of uh, feels like 
feels like that society is eons away. Um, but I think the big thing that would probably have to change is, um, you know, assumptions and expectations that, that we assume that a person is straight or cis unless stated otherwise. And I think with that assumption means value, that like it's it's equally valued for a person to be whatever gender they are or whatever sexuality. And it has those, those all have to be um, okay to the society at large for them to be mm. sort of equally accepted or not assumed. I think that's a good term, equally accepted, because celebrating one's masculinity or femininity is a totally beautiful thing too. If you're happy with who you are, how wonderful. Mm -hmm. Just don't rain on somebody else's parade that isn't. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question about the political climate now. So I have felt things getting better and there's obviously a huge backlash um, since the election. Has it affected your clientele um, and what are you telling them? You know, that's a that's a, a good question. Yeah, the, the in this case, the political the political is quite personal. Um, for my practice, what it has meant is um, a bit of an uptick in anxiety mm -hmm. that a lot of people are experiencing, and a little bit of. Um, Certainly folks are experiencing more anxiety and a little bit and feeling a lot less supported by the government. It really was different for folks who are going through a transition to be able to have in the back of their mind, hey, well, at the end of the day, like, like last resort, I believe that the government has my back. You know, with the idea that when Obama was president, that folks had this feeling that the commander in chief was someone who... Yeah. Cared about them as individual human beings. They had a right to be humans. People do not feel that any longer, mm -hmm. for the most part. Anecdotally, that's what I've noticed, that now there is no safety net of, well, at least I know the government has my back. Now the thought is a little bit more, gosh, I don't know. Or I'm pretty sure they don't. In some cases, it's been made pretty obvious that the lives and health of trans people aren't priorities um, by this administration, by the current administration. So, yeah, so for some folks, it has meant there is this new thing that they experience anxiety around. And there's a degree to which it means, um, you know, sometimes with when you're treating anxiety, you find that the anxiety is out of proportion to the stimulus. You know, if, a, for example, a person fe fearing going to a cafe because they'll be judged harshly by all the patrons, sometimes that's out of proportion to the stimulus. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not. In this case, a lot of the, really sadly, a lot of anxieties folks have about their health and their access to resources and their safety, those are not out of proportion to the stimulus that we have. People are, I'm hearing more reports of street harassment from clients. There are folks who are feeling more emboldened to shout epithets and slurs. And um, so there is more anxiety since the new administration and um, kind of more stimulus more actual threats Con considering myself transgender and wanting to feel more normal in society we talked the other day and i will catch everybody up um i was disappointed to hear that the dsm still considers this a disorder and you had a great explanation to me as to why many transgendered people promoted this to happen. Could you go into detail there, please? Sure, yes. Uh, gender, it was first in the DSM in 1980 as gender, well, not. it was first in the DSM in 1980, and over years, over the years, the name of the disorder has evolved. It was gender identity disorder, now it's gender dysphoria is the technical term. And at the republication of the DSM a few years ago, that was a big controversy. Do we keep this in? Do we include it? And they put a lot of, they had a task force um, and surveyed a lot of people in the transgender community, both folks who identify as transgender and folks who work for the rights and health of trans folks. And while there was different, there were differences of opinions, for the most part, folks wanted to keep it in because it allows access to medical transition services. It allows for health insurance to cover 
medical transition services. Without that diagnosis, health insurance would not be compelled to cover top surgery, to cover hormones, to cover psychotherapy associated with a trans identity or just uh, associated with the stress that come, can come with the trans identity. So while it is stigmatizing possibly and controversial about what it says about what we think about someone who doesn't identify with the sex with, with which they were identified at birth, for now it is utilitarian, I think, for a lot of people. They get that diagnosis so that they can participate in the system and get the things that they need for themselves. Those are basically the rules right now if you want to access medical transition resources. So it totally changed my appreciation, although I have mixed feelings because no one wants to be classified as having a disorder. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's it often gets compared to homosexuality, which was in the DSM for a long time. And I think for a lot of us now to think that sexuality was classified as a disorder is mind boggling. Mm -hmm. But somehow gender dysphoria has stayed in. And that is and they're obviously not equivalent or the same. But these are these simple identity categories that are getting pathologized and it makes you wonder why these categories of identity was the inertia moving to exclude it from the dsm as a disorder until people kind of saw the benefit of having it as a disorder do you do you know well you know the ds what is and isn't included in the dsm is determined by a table full of professionals raising their hands or not raising their hands mm -hmm. for the most part. Should we include gender dysphoria? Raise your hands. Uh, so there's a lot about the process that I don't, that I and others won't ever have access to. I know that it was a real push pull and that there was a while where it seemed like it was going to be out, where it really seemed like it was not going to stick around. Um, but the DSM-5, which is the, where, the, uh, where the name changed from identity disorder to dysphoria, had a lot of changes broadly. And I think, for whatever reason, this was one of the things that they didn't feel ready to change, whether it was that, the voices from the trans community saying, hey, this is how we, get to, how we get to our medical transition resources, or whether it was, uh, you know, for some other reason that that was that they decided to keep it in. Some folks have wondered whether um, whether there is a bit of politicking going on and whether there is something political about keeping it in the DSM. For now, it's there. And the, so folks have to contend with it as, as long as they're accessing services in traditional ways. This brings another thought to mind. Um, for a very long time, conversion therapy was considered the treatment for homosexuality and transgendered individuals. Um, it has recently been discredited by a British panel. Can you, this is a question you were not aware of ahead of time. Do you have any insight on any of this? Oh, I mean, you know, conversion therapy is just a really uh, dangerous to my mind, I can I can really speak only um, sort of personally as a as the, the theories that inform my own practice and from my education as a counselor. Um, you know, conversion therapy is uh, a pretty dangerous practice that supposes that you know what's better for someone than they do, but you know that their you know their identity better than they do. Um, and it caused a lot of pain for folks. You know, developmentally speaking, we really are learning a lot about the human brain. Um, but it looks like gender identity, gender ideas get, scientists have a lot of guesses, but somewhere around age two or three, mm -hmm. they're pretty, kids get a pretty clear idea of how they feel and how they identify. It doesn't look the same for everyone. It, ex get, they, it gets expressed in all sorts of different ways. But that's about the age when folks have pretty fixed ideas. So if you start someone in gen gender conversion therapy after that point, you are it's it, it, it's like what we used to do to people who wrote left-handed, making them write right-handed except your whole identity. And that's it was a lot more it's a lot more serious of a thing to say the who you are is not right 
and you have to change. Uh, a lot of great scientists thought that was the best thing to do. You know, a lot of great scientists who used to be associ- who are still associated with organizations thought it was the right thing to do. And, and it, but it happens to be that it's very painful. For, for Yes, for those people that don't know, can you explain a little bit about what was used in conversion therapy? Yeah, I mean, conversion therapy is not necessarily a lot of the talk. I mean, there is talk therapy elements to it, but unfortunately, and also really frequently involved electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy is sometimes how that's referred to. Um, just the kind of stuff that's out of a clockwork orange where you're picturing someone sort of um, you know, being exposed to stimulus and then being dissuaded or um, having prescribed treatments that are supposed to turn this part of your brain off. And, you know, we are, uh, like I said, we do not know very much about the human brain. We've really only been able to study it since the Civil War. And we do not know much about it. People thought it was a good idea to introduce a lot of electroshock therapy to the brain as though that would somehow change a person's gender sexuality it's a it's it's a bonkers thing to believe and it makes you wonder who gets to decide what sexuality is okay what what gets regulated and what doesn't what gender identity is okay Hmm. um so carolyn if people in the bloomington area who want to come see you for your services how can they get a hold of you well i am accessible through a lot of different means um i have a website which is just my name, carolinehippler.com. They can also email me, caroline at carolinehippler.com. It's not a lot to remember. Um, uh, And I'm around town, you know. I'm always happy to talk to people. And so it's caroline, it's C-O, I'm sorry, C-A-R-O-L-I-N-E-H-I-P-P-L-E-R. You got it. Dot com. Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, And there are... Um, you can always contact me even if you're not interested in services. If you just have a question or you want to be directed to a resource, I th- uh, one of the things that really drives my practice is empowering folks to make the choices that are right for them. That's my interest. And so if you need help, if you need to talk to someone but don't necessarily need a, a therapist, I'm really happy to disseminate information to break down those gates between people and the services that they need. Fantastic. Um, I just wanted to ask you one last question about how did you get into this line of work mm-hmm. with the LGBT, LGBTQ plus Well, uh, gender and sexuality have always been things that I'm really fascinated by and like talking about. Uh, my undergrad degree focused on gender and sexuality and um, – and then I went and taught high school for a little while. And moving away from that, I realized what I liked most about that experience was relationships. I was able to build with individuals and the times I was able to help my students with problems. Um, and I'm particularly passionate about the LGBTQ community about because of the mentioned reasons about gender and sexuality and knew that this was a community that needed a lot of um folks to dedicate their time and effort to it. And I feel, you know, I feel like it's an important, this is a, a community I'm a part of and that I want to serve that needs folks to serve it. So when I figured out that what I wanted to do was help and that this was this community I wanted to serve, the path after that was clear. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Caroline, for your service. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Absolutely. It has been educational and wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Rachel. It's wonderful to talk with you. And that's our show for tonight. Thanks to our listeners and our wonderful volunteers here at WFHB. Blooming Out is produced by Alex Ashkin. Our executive producer is WFHB News Director Wes Martin. Jesse Grubb is our engineer. For Blooming Out and WFHB, I am Rachel Jones. And I'm Kim Hahn. Tune in next week for a brand new Blooming Out every Thursday from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. on WFHB. Volunteer-powered community radio.